The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey everybody, we're going on tour and you can come out and see us in Orlando on August 12th, Nashville on September 6th, and we're going to wrap it all up on September 9th in our hometown of Atlanta, GA. That's right. And these are the last shows of the year. This has been a really good show this year. We're super excited about it. And this is going to be your only chance to be in the theater with us and, you know, like 15, 1600 of your closest pals. So go to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our tour page for links and information. And you can also go to linktree slash SYSK for the same stuff. We'll see you guys this August and September. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here, too. You can't see her, but you can if you relax your eyes, <laughs> lose focus. She may just pop right out at you and be like, hey, I'm Jerry. Good to meet you. <laughs> you thought I wasn't real. Uh-huh. All you need are lazy eyes. That's Well, no, actually, it doesn't work if you have lazy eye. I know. That's the opposite. Okay. Uh, we'll get that, to that later. I would love to see Jerry in a, in a magic eye poster popping out in my room. All right. You know? Well, you know, it's actually become so easy to do. There's so many programs out there now that um, you could do it, huh? You could. At the very least, a more capable and skilled Stuff You Should Know listener probably could. (laughs) I'll just keep talking about it. There you go. Uh, That's what we're talking about, though. If you are a uh, person of a certain age and you are either like a teenager or up probably in the 1990s, early Mm -hmm. 1990s, then you probably at some point— uh, much like Ethan Supley in the movie Mallrats would stand somewhere in a shopping mall uh-huh. at, a, at a wooden kiosk staring at a poster waiting for that, that shark or that sailboat to come out from the background of that poster. Yeah. The hidden the hidden trick. I tried it so many times, and I, I think maybe one out of 50 I was, I was able. Oh, yeah? I was not good at it. But I have to say, Chuck, uh, after researching it yesterday and today— Uh-huh. My eye muscles have never been in better shape than they are right now. <laughs> Did you I've try looking like, at them again? Yes, I've been popping and locking and like just I'll be like, here, give it to me. Bam, I'll see that one. Oh, let's see another one. Oh, I can good. actually I've so got you learned it. how. Yes, I did. I've I finally relaxed, I guess is what it what it comes down to. <laughs> but I I've gotten to the point where yeah. I can once I see it, I yeah. don't have to keep that focus. I can actually yeah. look around inside the the picture. Uh-huh. From like different angles and stuff. It's really cool. Yeah. I, I got to that point too, um, to where like at first I would do the trick where you hold it like in the book version where you would hold it very close to your face and slowly back it away. Because mm-hmm. as we'll see, that's one technique to see what the hidden picture. But uh, then I got to where once you once you sort of can train yourself, then you can just sort of look at it like you said and you know the little trick with your eyes. And then there's that polar bear or whatever. Yeah. But I should say it's it's been brought to our attention, I guess, ever since the Millie Vanilli episode. 
Mm-hmm. That even like that kind of definition is not necessarily <laughs> enough not, for some of our listeners. So I feel like still not good enough. No, I think we should go a little further. If you've okay. never seen uh, a magic eye poster, or, mm-hmm. you know, generically called a stereogram, what we're talking about is a a um, strange, seemingly random pattern of different colors, almost mm-hmm. splattered across a poster, and that if you relax your eyes in a certain way. So that you focus as if you're looking beyond the poster. Like right through it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some sort of magic scientific way that will explain. <laughs> sort of. A three-dimensional image suddenly forms. You suddenly uh-huh. see th- a 3D image that you cannot see if you're, if you're not looking at it the right way. Yeah. And when you do see it, there's, it's almost inevitable you're going to say, wow, or oh, or gosh, or something like that. It's thrilling every single time. It is. It appears to kind of jump away from the rest of the image. Mm-hmm. But uh, nice definition. But Thank I think you. we should go back because the uh, there's kind of a long and winding road to how we eventually got to the early 1990s mm-hmm. uh, with these magic eye posters that were um, you know, they were real fad. And we'll get to that. You know, they sold a lot of those things in a short amount of time. But uh, it goes all the way back to. Um, the early scientists of the world trying to figure out how in the world when you have two eyeballs that are spaced about 60-something millimeters apart, mm-hmm. you know, if they're, if they're spaced apart, they're going to be seeing things from a slightly different perspective. And how in the world do we do that and come up with, like, solid focus on things? Yeah. I mean, it, I had never really thought about it before, but binocular vision is what you're talking about. And yeah. by rights, we have two eyes, and like you said, they're separated by a certain amount of distance. So why don't we see two images of the world? Yeah, just Very slightly off images. from one another. Right. It, it turns out that if we did do that, we probably wouldn't be able to see with depth perception. Stere- we go crazy. Kind of. <laughs> it's called stereopsis is another word for depth perception. And it is in combining those two images that each eye gives the brain that we're able to see in one complete picture that has depth and um, richness and uh, maybe even a little kindness, depending on what you're looking at. Yeah, and the brain does this immediately. Uh, It figures it out so fast you don't even know what's happening. Uh, But we can go all the way back to our friend uh, Ptolemy, who we've Mm -hmm. talked about quite a bit, Yeah, uh, second-century Roman astronomer. And this is one of sort of the early ideas that was put forward, and, you know, they, they... as, as with all things sort of science, they put forward some ideas that aren't quite right, and they're refined over the years until they get to the reality of it. This is and, an ain't quite right one. Yeah, ain't quite right, because uh, Ptolemy thought that your eyes sent out rays, basically, visual rays mm-hmm. that hit an object, and when we're seeing something in focus, that means it's even, it's kind of hard to explain how bad it is, that the eyeball rays will converge on an object, and when they converge on that object, that's when you can see something in focus, basically. And if they converge on it too much, they burn it to a cinder accidentally. (laughs) He had it. He he picked up. There's two things. He had it backwards. We were actually accepting rays rather than shooting them out. So he was kind of getting there. And then he noticed that our two eyes um, create an angle. That's our focus. Mm -hmm. It can be wide, narrow, Depending on what we're looking at, if it's far away, mm-hmm. the focus is going to be at a sharper angle. If mm-hmm. it's closer, it's going to be at a wider angle. And um, he was on to something, but he didn't. He, he wasn't able to really put two and two together, and then he died, and that was it for him. Yeah. 
That's right. So up next, I guess we can flash forward to uh, this Arab scholar named um, Al-Hazin, is what I'm going to say. I think that's great. All right. <laughs> um, and he basically said, all right, what we have is an ability to sense this convergence of our eyes when they focus on an object. Mm-hmm. And what this is called basically, I don't know if he even said the word depth, but it helps us figure out how far something is, which is depth. Yes. And his, so his idea was that we could, we had some sort of sense that we, that was so involuntary, we weren't even aware of it. And that's how Which we knew. Is true. Yeah, for sure. But still not quite there. About 600 years later, uh, Kepler and Descartes kind of picked up on something similar. And they said, rather than being able to sense the degree of convergence that our eyes are focusing, um, we actually can feel how our eyes are rotating at any given point. And that's how we know where our eyes are focused or not focused. Yeah. Descartes said, like googly eyes, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and so, like, it was just wrong, wrong, wrong. Finally, in the 1830s, uh, an Englishman stepped up. His name was Sir Charles Wheatstone. Yeah. And he said, I've got this, everybody. Check this out. I have invented an invention that will prove that my hypothesis of binocular vision providing us one single image with depth is actually from, well, take it, Chuck. (laughs) Well, you know what's funny is in my notes, I had Wheatstone says, quote, I got this. (laughs) Nice. exactly what you said. That's simpatico. What were you setting me up for? Um, I don't know. Well, he had an invention. Can I just describe that at least? Yeah, the stereoscope. Yeah, the stereoscope uh, sat, the the first version of this that he introduced, sat on a table. Uh Uh, There's a great picture. It turns out that uh, Brian May of Queen is a big um, Wheatstone slash 3D stereogram binocular vision enthusiast. Mm -hmm. And so there's some cool pictures of him looking at this through this original stereoscope. So it sits on a desk, and uh, in the center, you put your eyes up to, you know, what looks like a little Viewmaster or a VR headset, basically. Mm -hmm. And it has these two angled mirrors, one for each eye. Uh, So when you look through it, it angles one eye out to the right and one eye out to the left. And in that peripheral vision on each side, there's a a little small wooden wall with a picture on each one. So one eye is looking at the left picture. The right eye is looking at the right picture. And you, you know, it has two little thumb holes that you hold. It's very elegantly, a little steampunk looking thing. It definitely is. And uh, that was how he basically proved this by by having each eye look at two separate things, uh, but they're both flat, uh, flat, flat images of the same thing. Basically, that's really that's key, right? So let's say you had a, a image of an apple cart. You have two pictures of that apple cart, and your eyes are seeing each one, right? Because right. there's that barrier in between your two eyes. So you, your, your eye is just seeing the left image, your right eye seeing just the right image, right? Yes. The distinction here, Chuck, and this is where Wheatstone like really laid the foundation for understanding binocular vision, is that each of those pictures has to be slightly different in perspective. That's right. So either there's a slightly different angle or you you took one picture and then moved a foot to the left and took the other picture and those are what you're seeing. And what he showed is that the brain can sense those, those slight, slight differences in perspective. And mm-hmm. that's what it uses when it combines two images into one image in your field of view to give it depth. That's how it senses depth, those differences in 
um, perspective or angle that each eye is feeding the brain as an image. Yeah, and if you're thinking this sounds like the the little viewmaster that you had when you were a kid, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Same exact thing. Yeah, in the same way that like the the computer went from like a room size thing to a, a PC to a laptop to our mm-hmm. phone. This this um, stereoscope did the same thing. It was a big clunky thing, the steampunk version, and then it got increasingly smaller and easier to handle and more um, handy. Although yeah. it was much Still less revolutionary um, than than oh, the yeah. computer. Yeah, they made it like uh, <laughs> they made it more handheld. Those in particular, there was uh, in the 1840s, there was a Scottish physicist who will be pretty prominent in this whole story, named uh, David Brewster, uh-huh. Sir David Brewster. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that invented, if you've ever seen one of these in a museum or something, sort of the early handheld version that looks like a little handheld steampunk VR headset, basically. Yeah, like mini uh, binoculars with a slide yeah. coming out of it that you use for focus. Yeah, and you hold it up to your eyes and it blocks out the rest of the light and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, his uh, more portable invention was coinciding with uh, photography becoming more and more developed and and sort of like proper photography. And so all of a sudden, it was this popular thing. And this was sort of the first fad of the stereogram. There were a couple of big ones. It was one in the 1990s and one in the mid-19th century. Uh, Queen Victoria went nuts for this thing in 1851 at the Great (laughs) Exhibition at Crystal Palace. And all of a sudden, people just wanted these things to play with and look through and marvel at. Yeah, I read from the 1850s to the 1930s when radio finally came in and, and yeah. took over that um, there was basically not a parlor in the UK or America that didn't have one of these things. Like you just amused yourself with them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there were companies that were producing hundreds of thousands or millions of different stereoscopic images for you to look at, mm-hmm. I mean— you could just spend endless hours of entertainment looking uh, at one thing or another. And and they would take images of, um, like, scenic landmarks. Sure. Supposedly stereoscopic images of, um, like, Yellowstone, mm-hmm. I think, the Yellowstone area, actually convinced congressmen back east that there actually was an amazing wilderness out there that should oh, that's worth preserving. Three D. Yeah, exactly. It really made it pop. In other words, they also wow. very quickly started making porn with it. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> everything that you would imagine people doing when they figured right. out how to make pictures that really stand out with depth. They yeah. did. They were like, "These are fantastic," but what's better than a landscape? Ladies' ankles. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Uh, they original, uh, the original piece of equipment used to make these were um, stereo cameras, and mm-hmm. they were these cameras with two lenses that kind of mimic the eyes. They're set about eye-width apart, um, and those were around for a while, and there are still enthusiasts that own stereo cameras, as uh, we'll see in a little bit. That kind of figures into how they became popular in the 90s. Uh, but in the United States, while all this was going on, uh, American surgeon... Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., mm-hmm. uh, Papa of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. of the Supreme Court fame, mm-hmm. uh, he invented one in the United States, and he's like, you know what? This thing's so great, I'm not even going to patent it. I want all kind of companies to make these, and I want these spread far and wide. I guess he was a surgeon, so he wouldn't hurt or anything. Right. And people, I think he's the one that uh, coined the term 
stereograph, and then the word stereogram kind of became the, the go-to <laughs> for these images. Yeah, everybody's like, close, we're going to switch it up just a little bit. And still exactly. today, if you're an enthusiast into stereoscopic photography, the stereogram is usually the term that you use. All right, I think that's a robust 15 minutes. Yeah, all of the 19th century stereogram viewers say, bully, bully, bully. <laughs> That's right. Bully in 3D. Uh, so we'll be back to talk about the next development, which was the auto stereogram right after this. If you want to know, then you're in luck. Just listen up to Josh and Chuck. Stuff you should know. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other, as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Stuff you should know. All right, Chuck, now we finally get to the stuff where I'm fascinated. Yeah. Just riveted, right? Because it's <laughs> it's enough that um, our friends uh, Wheatstone and Brewster mm-hmm. contributed the foundation to our understanding of binocular vision. But along came in, I think, the 1950s. Boy, that sounds like a craft cocktail bar, doesn't it? What, Bruce, like Wheatstone and Brewster? Brewster. Yeah. Like you have to have that armband or else you can't get employed there. I just got really thirsty. Sorry, go ahead. Um, There was a a scientist, a neuroscientist named Bella Eulas, um, hat tip to Chuck for that one, uh, who (laughs) ran the Sensory and Perceptual Processes Department at AT AT&T Bell Labs. Again, I think I said in the 50s. And um, Eulas was, I guess, kind of focused on visual perception. Mm Mm-hmm. And figured something out. They just like just in the same way that um, that Wheatstone's invention kind of led to this neat in this neat um, party toy. trick toy. Yeah, Eula's yeah. um, invention kind of did the same thing. But neither one of them were trying to create yeah. uh, an amusement. They were they were creating a, a way to prove a hypothesis that they were interested in. And what he did was come up with the random dot stereogram. Yeah, so this is, uh, he would basically start by, um, let's say you have like a square or something that you fill in randomly uh, with black dots. And then within that square, you pick a part of it and decide on like maybe a shape or something. Mm-hmm. So within that that square, you'll say, all right, well, I'm going to select a circle within that, like maybe right in the middle. And I'm going to create a second square that's just like the first except that circle in the center that I've selected mm-hmm. is just going to be shifted just a little bit, kind of like we were talking about, that slight slight difference of perspective. Yeah. And then when you put these two squares side by side, mm-hmm. 
And when you look at these two squares, uh, you can look at it through a stereoscope if you have one. But the key here is is that he was proved that like, hey, you can just do this with your naked eye if you learn the the trick that people will be trying to figure out, you know, up until 2023 with future podcaster Josh Clark, sure. where you unfocus your eyes and then those circles appear to sort of separate from the background. Yeah. And so those two separate images, you still see them. But what they do is combine to make a third image in the center. And that's the one that has the, the say, the circle popping out of it, right? Yeah. And Eula's obviously created the foundation for Magic Eye posters with that. Mm-hmm. But what he did more than anything was show that what our brain does when it takes in those two separate images in slightly different perspectives because our eyes are separated just ever so slightly, it compares basically pixel for pixel mm-hmm. each of the um, each of the the images that the eye send it and matches it up. And then when it finds parts that don't quite match up, yeah. it uses that to create the illusion of depth. And yeah. that's what his his um, his random dot stereogram showed. That what your eye is doing is taking those two those two pictures and matching up every single random dot in there, and then noticing all this is in a nanosecond, noticing what uh, it doesn't match up, and then that's that circle that pops out. And then uh, the way that he proved it is because those two different pictures form a single image in the center, right? Yeah. So if you weren't looking at two pictures, you were just using two eyes at one picture, then that effect would still be produced. And it really just kind of laid the foundation and showing just exactly how our brain makes binocular vision into depth perception. Right. So we're we're inching closer to the 90s mm-hmm. and that, that singular poster or coffee table book image mm-hmm. that we all knew. Uh, but it came to us in the 1970s thanks to a uh, a student of Ulez's uh, named Christopher Tyler, who was a neuroscientist. And he basically said, you know what? We don't even need the two pictures, everybody. Like, you're doing pretty good, but what if, like, how mind-blowing would it be if we could do this all from a single image? Uh, he called it the auto-stereogram and basically made it to where it's sort of like this uh, like staring at a wallpaper. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think, was he the one? Who, Brewster. Uh, no, no, it was Brewster who stared at wallpaper, and that's how they figured that out. <laughs> he was an odd duck. Which is interesting. But uh, Tyler got together with a programmer named Maureen Clark and said, well, we can probably figure this out with math. So they, they created a, an algorithm uh, that could insert these images into what looks like just almost like white noise on a on paper. Yeah, and so they did away with all the crud, those extra two images that still remain when that third when they come together and form that illusory third image in the middle. Yeah. So that you just see something as you normally would see it, but if you adjust your eyes just the right way, then that 3D image is going to come out. And now we finally arrive in the 1970s at the the auto stereogram is what they called it. Um which became better known eventually as the Magic Eye poster. Right. So, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, all right, guys, this is the 1970s. You keep talking about the grunge era. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did we get from the 1970s to the grunge era, or or why didn't we get there quicker, basically? Uh, And one of the reasons is uh, this guy named Tom Boucher. He's from Connecticut. He has sort of a, sounds like sort of a hippy-dippy backstory 
through the 1960s, working all kinds of crazy jobs, but was was like a super bright guy, a uh, mathematician and a musician. Um, eventually got, you know, real grown-up type jobs, uh, like helped NASA make their navigation systems working with a company called Intermetrics. And in the early 90s, landed at a British tech company called Pentica. Mm-hmm. And this thing all came together really in the in the thing that we all knew and love in the 90s because of advertising. Um, they had a product, Pentica did, called uh, the MIME, capital M-I-M-E, in-circuit emulator. Mm-hmm. And they were, uh, Boucher was tasked to uh, designing an ad for this thing. And so he said, hey, let's put a real MIME in this advertisement. It's all very serendipitous. Cause it really this, is. This MIME that they hired, it's either Lab or Labby, L-A-B-B-E, mm-hmm. uh, shows up on set. And it turns out that Lab was one of those stereo photography enthusiasts that still had those, you know, dual lens stereo cameras. Mm-hmm. He happened to bring this thing in on the set and Bechet was like, um, OMG, what is that thing? And just was like, it sounds like it was just instantly sort of taken with his idea. Yeah, he said it was the most compelling optical illusion I'd ever seen. There you have it, in his own words. So what he he did, he said, okay, I I really appreciate your help here, so I'm going to keep going with this mime ad. But I'm also going to try to make another ad using one of these auto stereograms. Uh, and he did. He made uh, he made one that had the hidden message M700, which was a version of their um, in-circuit emulator that his company yeah. made. Which, who knows what that is. I even tried to figure it out. <laughs> so the best I could see is that it's a, like, rather than using your computer to figure out if a circuit, like a microprocessor, a circuit uh-huh. board works, this thing emulates either your computer or a circuit board so that you can find individual bugs and fix them. That's the best I could come up with. It's still very confusing, but that's yeah. that's that. And just so as a listener, you're not confused, This that has nothing to do with what happened. It was it was just a product. It could have been a, a, a widget or whatever. Definitely. Uh, but the idea was it was another ad that he actually used the technology to make a auto stereogram for this ad. And this ad was so – it made such an impression on people mm-hmm. that it made it out of the pages of Embedded Systems Engineering Magazine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> into something of like the general corporate culture. And all Man, of a sudden, is... <laughs> at his desk at, at um, Pentica – Bashay starts getting faxes from people saying, "Hey, can you make me and my company yeah. one of those those really neat ads that you made?" And he ended up kind of creating like a, a little mini side job for himself, mm-hmm. um, creating custom auto stereograms for people who faxed him and asked for him. Yeah, he he was no artist though. So uh, very smartly in 1991, he hooked up with uh, a woman named Sherry Smith. Mm-hmm who was an artist, a freelancer, and uh, I think was also a computer uh, graphics person. And so he said, you're perfect. You're an artist and you know computer graphics. So you can kick this thing up a notch and basically make images that are a little more interesting to look at. Right. Uh, But it was still sort of an advertising thing because they made one for American Airlines for their in-flight magazine that was really popular. Uh, And apparently for a while at least, they would give away uh, a bottle of champagne um, I would think a glass, but I guess a bottle of champagne <laughs> to the first person on the flight who could find the image and say what it was. Uh, of course, it was an airplane. Um, but after the American Airlines ad thing, 
Boucher was like, wait a minute, like people are going nuts for this in ads, but I think like people are going so crazy for this. I think we could just sell these somehow. Right. Take his his job for making these for other companies and just make them and sell them directly to the public. And he actually started out doing mail order. He was he realized he was on to something because he mm-hmm. started doing mail order in order to try to kick off a fad that he could then go and license to other people or partner with a big company and make himself that much more desirable. He really approached this in a, yeah. a smart like way. A- a Kickstarter of the time probably was mail order. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really great analogy. And he created a company or either he created it or he already had it and repurposed it. N period E period thing enterprises. Very clever. Very, very clever. Anything. <laughs> yeah. And he... Uh, Get it, everyone? He uh, just, just 100%, <laughs> uh, just to make sure, instead of N period E period, <laughs> what you're really saying is A-N-Y thing. Yeah. Anything. Like, yeah. Anything. We're anything enterprises. Right. So anything, N period, E period, thing, (laughs) enterprises, partnered with a Japanese company called Tenyo. And Mm -hmm. Tenyo was a magic trick maker. They still are, as far as I can tell. Um, Probably. And they uh, said, this actually is amazing, and we think uh, our friends in Japan are going to go crazy for it. And they licensed it and started publishing books based on um, the magic eye, what would come to be no magic eye. As Magic Eye. And apparently it was the Tenyo company that said, let's call it Magic Eye because the name you have for it is stupid. I disagree. Uh, they called it Magic Eye because, like you said, they were a magic trick company and mm-hmm. had a line of magic this, magic that. Mm-hmm. But I think Boucher's original name, Stereos uh, hyphen, or I guess comma, the amazing 3D gaze toys. But you have you to really spell it out. <laughs> well, S-T-A-R-E, stare, Stereos. I kind of like that. I think it's catchy. You forgot the hyphens. No, S-T-A-R-E hyphen, E hyphen, O-S. Right. <laughs> you know who would love this Boucher guy is Jonathan Strickland. Yeah, probably. He's a punny so. <laughs> type, so I think Strickland would be like, you're my kind of guy for sure. Uh, I think you should tell everyone, though, the great, great name of, or rather the great translated name uh, of the, the first book that they put out in Japan of these. So thank you for that. It's called Miru Miru Mega Yakanaru Magic Eye, which means... What does that mean? Translated? Your eyesight gets better and better in a very short rate of time. Colon, Magic Eye. <laughs> oh, man, that's so good. <laughs> and it was a hit, apparently. It was a bestseller very quickly. Uh, I think they started, I read, they started selling them on street corners, and then very quickly after that, the, the, first, print, uh, the first printing ran out, and they... They made another huge run, and that sold out, and it was just a hit yeah. in Japan. And it's interesting. It went from America to Japan and then back to America where it really kind of blew up. Yeah, I guess Bechet didn't have—from what I could tell, uh, he was partnered in Japan, but I guess still had the um, the rights to do it in the United States, mm-hmm. even though, as we'll see, like he didn't own this idea like no one did right? because other people came along later. It was— it wasn't like a specific technology you could patent or anything. Right. Um, but he was the first person in the U.S., it looks like, to bring to bring it over here and partner with a guy named uh, Bob Selitsky, who was a former uh, colleague at Pentica. And it sounds like Selitsky was a guy who just made a, a more robust computer program right. uh, to automate the stuff, to make it easier to come up with different images, uh, and then also colorize it. So they were previously black and white. And all of a sudden, you could do these things in color. 
which made them look sharper, evidently. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hooked up with a licensing agent named Mark uh, Gregorek, who said, hey, this thing, like we could license the crud out of this. First thing we got to do is get it in a book, uh, which they did in 1993. And that was that very first, what ended up being super popular uh, magic eye book. Yeah. I mean, think about how serendipitous it is starting with Ron Lab and then all of the people he met along the way who ended yeah. up making this the fad that it became. He totally. really lucked out. He fell backwards into something really interesting. Mm-hmm. But he, um, they, they released a bunch of books. But while the first Magic Eye book in the United States was still fresh on the bestseller list, they released a second one and that quickly joined the first one on the bestseller list. America just went nuts for these things. Yeah. One reason it went nuts is because there was a certain measure of superiority that you could hold <laughs> over people who couldn't do it. Like you can't see it. There were people out there, including me, who just yeah. couldn't do it. And you just get so mad and frustrated. And the people who could do it found that really yeah. satisfying, I've always suspected. Yeah, it took me a while. It wasn't like I instantaneously got it, but I eventually did. And that was kind of the joke in, in Mallrats. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. I didn't. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, the Kevin Smith mm-hmm. movie, sure. I guess right after Clerks. And Ethan Supley, like I said, would stare and stare at it. And people were making fun of him. And, like, there's one scene, uh, like, these two little kids came up and, like, got it right away. And he just gets more and more frustrated. So <laughs> He's I think perfect that's, for that. Yeah, that's sort of playing into what you were talking about with just, like, feeling like a dummy if you couldn't get it. Yeah, and that definitely was a thing. I, I read, you know, a number of, like, kind of retrospectives about it. And most of them were from people who couldn't get it. And they still mm-hmm. seemed slightly bitter. Right. But they still can't get it, <laughs> you know, 30 years on or whatever. But um, yeah. it was it was enormous, not just at mall kiosks, but in, in books. There is a comic strip that's still around that you can license through UPI if you want. Uh-huh. Um, it showed up on Honey Nut Cheerios boxes. There were <laughs> postcards. Other companies came a call in and said, hey, we want you to make some of these for us, like Disney. I think mm-hmm. CBS um, had them do something for like one of their internal sales booklets. It, it just started showing up everywhere. And I think the, the cream of the crop of like additional stuff that came out of this was mm-hmm. a, a book that Bechet put together, a magic eye book for Christmas called Do You See What I See? <laughs> Isn't that just precious? Yeah, that's good. I couldn't good find time. one. I found a Christmas themed one, but I don't think it was from the Do You See What I See book. Yeah. That's was disappointing. It was a little bit. Uh, so, Bechet basically said in uh, 1994, in one year, he estimates that they raked in between 200 and a quarter of a million bucks. Or, or sorry, a quarter of a billion. Billion dollars. 200 and 250 million. Yeah, and that was, I think, the peak year 93 or 94 was. It was huge. All right. So, uh, Bechet is going strong, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, no one owned this um, idea. It's not a, a particular technology. So people started jumping on board and doing their own. And the main standout to me, I think, is uh, are the guys who, if, if you saw them at the mall kiosks, mm-hmm. you probably saw the version from a company called Hallusion Art Prints. And Art Prints, emphasis on art, I think. Yeah. And so these guys, Paul Heber... Uh, who's an aerospace engineer and a software engineer named Mike Belinsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were turned on by these things too, and they said, hey, this is pretty great. We're two smart guys. We can build our own computer program and algorithm uh, to make these things ourselves. And they started making these posters in 92, 
And that those were the Hallusion art prints that you would most likely those are the ones, like I said, that you were seeing at the kiosk for about twenty to twenty-five bucks. These guys were printing these things for a quarter, uh, even with um, like, like if they're wholesaling these things to the kiosk, they're still making some pretty good dough off of that yeah, kind of market. Maybe ten bucks, something like that, off a poster. Yeah, cost them a quarter. That's a good. Uh, it's a good return. Heck yeah, it is. Um, and they started churning these things out. But like I said, there's an emphasis on art prints. Like they kind of saw theirs as it was different. It was distinguished from the other ones because this they were just so well made. The yeah. problem is, is people are like. That's great. I can still get the same effect from a similar one from one of your competitors for $5 at Spencer's Mm -hmm. rather than $25 at your admittedly very charming kiosk. Right. Uh, I'm going to go with the $5 (laughs) one. And so they they set themselves up for some pretty serious competition out of the gate. Yeah, big time. Uh, And there are all kinds of people pumping these things out. Uh, But like you said, you go to the kiosk, you get your ears pierced. Sure. Buy a top quality. uh, 17-year-old. $25, excuse me? <laughs> I don't know. I meant uh, purchase a top-quality poster. Okay. But, yeah, you're also getting your ear pierced by a top-quality 17 <laughs> Claire's. <laughs> Piercing Pagoda or Claire's or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Bechet, their company started to fade a little bit because of the competition. Um, and he, he thought, like, when he was interviewed in 94 by Inc. Magazine, mm-hmm. he, he thought this was like, hey, this is the beginning. We're going to be huge. Uh, his literal quote was talking about being a Disney of the 21st century <laughs> uh, and, like, making it into a big multimedia company. And then many years later, in, like, the late uh, 2016 or 2017, he reflected back and said, well, as it turns out, maybe that was just my 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't that much fun, and it was really exhausting. Uh, he ended up selling his majority stake in NE thing to uh, Smith and another one of the employees there who renamed it Magic Eye. And Smith, Sherry Smith, still owns the company today. Yeah, that original graphic artist he first partnered with, which is pretty cool. I think that's great. Yeah. You know? I bet they still make some dough off of this. Yeah. Can you imagine if if today we were, you know, you, uh, you'd tell your friend, I'm going to anything Enterprises this summer, and right. they would say world <laughs> or land? Yeah. This doesn't quite have that ring, you know? No, it doesn't. So, yeah, that fad ran its course. Even during the heat of it, everybody but Bechet was well aware this is a fad. And he knew, but he was hoping beyond hope that he could turn it and parlay it into something else, right? Yeah. But as much as the rest of the world kind of moved on from stereograms, they proved to be a really um, useful uh, training technique for people whose eyes don't don't um, align properly because of uh, yeah. poor muscular development, people with yeah. strabismus uh, in particular. Yeah, it almost uh, they'll do like these tr- little exercises. They'll give you these exercises to do, and it's almost like a, a workout for your eyeballs right. to to build that muscle back up. Yeah, exactly. Um, apparently, there's a critical window when you're young. Uh, I yeah. think up to about three, maybe four where your brain learns to put together the two different pictures that its eye, your eyes are giving it uh, into one cohesive whole, and that mm-hmm. if your eyes aren't aligned properly or, or there's another condition where one eye is way more dominant than the other, your mm-hmm. brain just disregards the picture from the non-dominant or non-aligned eye and just relies on the, the dominant or you know, straight eye. 
and you don't see in depth. You just have monocular vision. You, you're getting information from both eyes. They both work just fine, but your brain's just disregarding one. And so you, you're what's called stereo blind. And they can correct that through surgery, but after surgery, they start showing you magic eye posters to train yourself. Yeah, Ruby had something. It wasn't exactly this, but she has, has always had, like, when she's really tired, mm. one of her eyes can go wonky. That's so cute. Uh, it is. And when she was little, she wore a patch for a little while. And then, you know, we, we've we kept taking her to the to the eye doctor all these years. Mm-hmm. And they finally were like, you know, it's fine. Like, she's, she's basically corrected it. It still happens sometimes when she's super tired. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say, I'll say, Ruby, you know, snap your eyes together. And she'll go, zoop. And she can <laughs> yeah. she can do it on purpose. Yeah. So she kind of learned how to control it, I guess. That's pretty cute. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, if you wanted to make a magic eye puzzle, uh, there's just a few things you need to to know. Actually, you, do, you don't really need to know anything about it because today there's so many free, um, right. like, like stereogram building software yeah. available. Um, you, need to know, you need to know how to type the word sailboat. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, when I was looking on how to make a stereogram, I found an Instructables article, uh-huh. and I opened it up. It said, eight steps to making a stereogram uh, or auto-stereogram image. Step uh-huh. one was download a stereogram maker <laughs> program. <laughs> Very key. Yeah, exactly. But what you're doing is, um, I th- I'd say we just kind of talk about how they work real quick, Okay. Before we finish? Yeah, I, I still don't quite get it. I mean, I kind of know how you can see one, but I still don't quite get how they're made. Oh, I don't either. Oh, oh, oh. So I'm you mean how? how I'm oh, okay. I, I don't actually. <laughs> There's a little bit that I kind of understand, but from what I gather, mm-hmm. they you take your image um, and you make it separately, right? So when you're when you're looking at a magic eye poster. There's usually not much detail, especially in the ones from the 90s. It's a star. Mm-hmm. It's a ball. It's a, yeah, yeah. I think it's a dragon kind of thing. Right. It's just an outline, a silhouette. And they've gotten way more sophisticated since then. To I saw one today that was a squirrel, and you could see the pupil in the squirrel's eye. Like, it was really sophisticated. Oh, wow. They've gotten really good at it. But what they do, whether it's primitive or really sophisticated— they're taking that image, making a silhouette, but they're giving the silhouette depth using mm-hmm. grayscale. So yeah. the lighter the gray color uh, shading there is to the silhouette, the closer it is to you, the darker it is, the further away it is. Just like you would in like a, a regular, like a, a charcoal drawing of something, right? Except there's right. nothing in the middle. And then the computer program takes that computer-generated image and it assigns different values depending on how light or dark along the grayscale each pixel is, and that's how much it gets displaced. So the lighter it is, uh, the further away it gets displaced, the more it's going to pop out towards you, which indicates that this part of the, the picture is in, in the foreground. It's closer to you than, say, the rump of the squirrel. Yeah, so the white parts would be closer, the dark parts would appear more distant, mm-hmm. and that creates the depth. But then you still have to have that repeating pattern laid out over the top of it. Right. Uh, and that, I mean, that's basically it. You you put that repeating pattern on top mm-hmm. in these vertical strips, or rather a computer does. Right. And then that, that program just translates the shades of those pixels uh, onto that depth map. And via magic, it all comes together. Yeah. Magic and programming. It's neat. And when I say sophisticated, I mean it. I saw one today. I, I'm really sad I didn't send it to you. I meant to. 
But it is um, basically a coral reef scene with different, you can tell the different kinds of fish. Like there's different clownfish closer in the foreground. Um, mm-hmm. There's like triggerfish in the background. Like there's a middle ground to the whole thing. Like that's how good they've gotten. And like that's I was so saying cool. initially, when you see it and you really see it, you can start looking around inside the image. It's they've just it's just so amazing. Just look up like, um, I guess I think I searched sophisticated oh, yeah. um, uh, stereograms or magic eye or something like that, and it brought up some really good ones. Yeah, it's uh, and what you mentioned earlier about like the fact that you couldn't see him for so long. You can only have this feeling once, which is not ever being able to see one to finally seeing your first one, mm-hmm. and when that picture jumps out. Uh, from the poster, the very first time, it is like, it's a thrill. You're, you're like, I finally oh, yeah. got it. I see what you mean. Because there's also this idea, which of course isn't true, but, you know, I remember when they first came around that it, I thought it was like, uh, some people thought it was like a snipe hunt. Right, so yes, like, yeah. There, There is no picture, and it's just a way you fool your friends into staring at a thing for an hour. So when you finally have it jump out and it's proven to you, it's a pretty remarkable feeling it is and there were a couple over the last like day or so where i was like wait a minute is this surely somebody out there has done that (laughs) just for fun but yeah the whole the whole thing wasn't just a big in joke i'm sure some people thought that for real yeah so the trick that you can there's a few tricks um one is the one i mentioned earlier is like uh if it's not a poster and it's a piece of paper you can hold hold it very close to your nose uh where you can't even really focus on it and very slowly pull it away, but try and keep your, try not to focus on it still. Right. Uh, some, many of them will have two little objects, like two dots above the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And they say like, stare at those and unfocus until you see three of them. I wasn't able to do that. I am not able to do that either. Or maybe I, I didn't try long enough, but I always just basically, once I did the nose trick and you have sort of taught your eye, like I said, you can just sort of get it by just sort of unfocusing in the middle distance. Right. Um, yeah, that's the way that I do it. Just relax the eyes and let it come. Yeah. You just got to be patient. Got to be patient. Um, I guess that's it. I think basically everybody should go out and start looking at uh, auto stereograms, huh? Yeah, they're not a joke. Nope. They're really the neat. images are really there. Yeah. The first time, like you were saying, uh, you you see one, pyrotechnics go off and right. the final <laughs> countdown starts playing. It's, it's wow. triumphant. It's pretty well. You always had the final countdown playing, so that's probably what that was. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, you got anything else? I got nothing else. All right, everybody. That means, of course, it's time for listener mail. So, my friend, I'm just going to pick one at random. And when I say randomly select, I mean randomly select from the, the large pool of people who wrote in about your mask. No. Oh, Can we talk about this? I guess. <laughs> I did not see so this, this coming. Was, if you remember uh, from the short stuff episode recently on Fahrenheit to Celsius conversion, mm-hmm. uh, I even commended you on the show for being brave enough to try public math again. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently you didn't get it right again. No. Is that really so a surprise gonna, to anybody, though? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Is it? No. Uh, let me see here. Let's go with uh, Jake uh, Eichenbergers. Okay. Uh, hey, guys. I haven't laughed out loud to myself in a while, but... Hearing Chuck compliments Josh Bravery with attempting live math really hit the spot. Uh, I'm sure you get a lot of emails, but for Celsius to Fahrenheit, you add the 32 after the multiplication, not before. Mm-hmm. 
and I always treat 1.8 as the fraction 9 fifth, 9 fifths because 5 is easy to deal with. So for instance, for 21, I would use 20 plus 1 mm -hmm. because I use the fact that 20 is easily divided by 5 to my advantage. Sure. Uh, so, oh jeez, now I don't understand any of this. So, blah, 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 math stuff. Now add the 32. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they came up with 36, so 36 plus 32 is 68. And don't forget about the plus 1 from earlier. Every 1 degree Celsius is 1.8, so 68 plus 1.8 would be 69.8 as the optimal butterfly temperature. Yeah. I like my version better, even though it produces incorrect results. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't even have tried it, so hats off to you for that. Thank you. Thank you for still commending me. And thank you to uh, who? That that was just Jake and, let's say, all the others. Jake et al. I et appreciate al. you guys for correcting me. Thank you for that. It's been a great day. <laughs> oh, no. If you want to get in touch with us like Jake et al. did, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today.